Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm the butler. <laughs> Today we are talking about Minute 7, which begins with Schmidt shattering the Tesseract and ends with a snake in the roots of Yggdrasil. Joining us again on the show today and all week, we have Curtis Findlay from the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back, Curtis. The Epic Curtis Findlay. Thank you for having me once again. Excited to talk about this minute here. This is an Asgard-heavy minute. It's it's kind of fun after having talked about Thor so much last season. Here we are talking about um, the Tesseract being the jewel of Odin's treasure room. And, of course, we have Yggdrasil, the, the uh, image on the wall in the bas-relief. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's uh, kind of fun to have these connections. What did you two think when you first saw this? Were you surprised to have any connection to Thor and kind of Asgardian, like that that history in a film that takes place during World War II? I was, I was super excited when I saw that. Uh, and I think at this point, like, it was very important to have this scene because this is the first thing in, uh, in this movie that connects it to the rest of the Marvel universe. And Thor was the previous movie. So it, I think it's also at this point and stage in the MCU and in their production, it, it's important to call back to the previous movie that just happened. Because these were spaced like a year apart, right? They weren't, they weren't banging them all out every other month like they do now. Thor and Captain America were fairly close. Um, like they came okay. out, I think, um, within a few months of each other. But um, that was oh, just right, because... Yeah. They had they had said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to do this um, since we got all this stuff working. Let's re- make it happen." And then they they pushed to get yeah, the Avengers. They ramped it up, yeah, in 2012. So those two happened to come out fairly close, and they were in production on the Avengers while those were filming. But I still think it's pretty key to include these references here, and we'll see. You know, the movie ties into um, uh, the the rest of the MCU in other ways, but this is the first time that we're seeing. The, the the larger world or referencing the larger world and they don't even really mention thor like marvel thor it, it could just be talking about norse mythology yeah they do what i think is is the most sort of heartwarming bit of tie-in here is that uh, is J.R. tolkien's borrowings from north mythology norse mythology in this having hugo weaving talking about uh yggdrasil and <laughs> right. knowing that it was actually gimli as the place where um survivors of ragnarok go to go to live after uh, after ragnarok like the tie-ins between lord of the rings and this universe do define the fact that captain america is is actually uh, a uh, forebear to, um, you know, uh, the hobbits, hobbits of old. <laughs> right. He was, he was a ranger. He's an early ranger. He's a la- <laughs> uh, the, the descendant of the rangers. Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. Very true. Very true. I, I do love this, the kind of the connections. And, I you know, it was great to have that moment here when we're talking about Odin's treasure room, especially because, you know, having done this Thor season, um, learning that they actually had scripted to have the, the Tesseract, um, you know, a conversation about it being in there early in the film, it didn't end up making it, but it was kind of, it would have been fun to kind of have seen it in there and then have it connected here. Kind of this idea of it being this thing that was a treasure in Odin's um, 
treasure room. I, I love that idea. Yeah. And I, I love, I love the shattering of it because I, I feel like that is an element of just like kind of the smarts of this character. And especially when you see, you know, his lieutenant's shocked face, <laughs> like, what have you done? Right. And, uh, and Schmidt's just like, it, it doesn't fool me. Uh, I, I I don't know. I love that bit. I just I find it to be just so fun in the way that we're kind of you know he's good at putting these puzzle pieces together. So can I can we talk about the line that you just mentioned? Um, a jewel in Odin's treasure room. There's two things I want to say. The first thing is that in the comics, the cube is a scientific artifact. It's manufactured by a group of scientists called AIM, and uh, they are doing away with that concept here and making it an actual mythological artifact. And I think that works really well uh, in the context of the MCU, especially coming hot off the heels of Thor. It's like, again, I, I said this in the last episode, but if this movie were being made today, we could have the Cosmic Cube as it was presented in the comics. Um, because the audience is way more receptive to completely outlandish ideas now than they were when this movie was made. So by just making it a mythological artifact, that suspension of disbelief is way easier to, to swallow, right? Absolutely. For those of you who don't know, the Cosmic Cube in the comics is a result of two accidental experiments from AIM. One experiment is that they accidentally managed to uh, Terra rift in space and cosmic energy started eking out. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was that they were able to make um, a force field uh, just by accident. And so they used that force field to contain this cosmic energy. And when the cosmic energy went into the force field, it took the shape of a cube. <laughs> and so that just that whole concept is like, Movie audiences weren't ready for that uh, that brand of uh, science fiction in in 2011, but they can handle that now. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's interesting too that it's that level of science fiction, but it's in arguably the most grounded of of uh, Marvel heroes, right? A yep. soldier, right? The thing that we can grasp with culturally, you know, we can we can reckon with culturally the best of all of the, you know, uh, all of the the historical sort of Marvel characters. And yet totally. here they are introducing this bug nuts crazy sci-fi uh, <laughs> yeah. element into it, I think is is sort of delightful. And the second thing I want to say um about that that line is that um we mentioned I mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark in the other episode, and the the two those two movies really really t work well together because Nazi archaeology was an actual real thing. Like they had a branch of their uh, of the the Nazi I don't know. There's a Nazi branch that was specifically devoted to archaeology, and they went and found things like the Ark of the Covenant. That was actually something that they actually were looking for in history. Um, and the and so to have uh, Schmidt come and and like he he's he, he I think we can gain from the conversation that Hitler was looking for this as well. But Schmidt found it first uh, through his his means or whatever. Um, but I want to I want to um, tell you a little bit about this Nazi history because yeah. there is one guy who is in charge of this archaeological unit. His name was Herman uh, Worth. Herman Worth. This is a real guy, real person. 
He his belief was that Atlantis wasn't located in the Mediterranean. It was actually located in the Atlantic, off of the coast of Norway. Oh, and that um, that all of the descendants uh, of Atlantis were actually the origins of the Aryan uh, race, the master race. Interesting. Okay. And so uh, they, he also believed that Odin was one of the only survivors of Atlantis, and he made his way to Norway, and that's where they set up the the whole mythology there. And the, the German blood uh, comes from Atlantis. So he was desperate to find Atlantis to prove that they were that this is the lineage of the master race because Atlantis mythology the mythology of Atlantis is that they were a way more advanced culture than anywhere else in the world before it sunk into the ocean uh, so it would make sense to him that Germans Nazi Germans were descendants from this extremely advanced society <laughs> so the fact that we have now Thor uh, like, um, you know, the tree of Yggdrasil and everything tying into this movie here, I think is really, really great because, yes, they were looking in Norway for a lot of this kind of stuff anyway. Like, it actually works with actual World War II history. That's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. That's wonderful. Yeah, I love that they they find ways to build those connections. And that's something I, um, as we kind of continue talking about this particular film, uh, over the course of the whole season, the way that they do find connections to real history to tie in kind of this faux history that we're doing, this this Marvel history and kind of the elements that are brought into it. I think it's really interesting and clever uh, the way they do that. And that's something that I, I really enjoy when the comic book writers do it and likewise also when the filmmakers do it. So it's it's fantastic that they're incorporating those elements. And uh, yeah, and that that will also <laughs> we'll be able to talk about that a little more in a couple minutes um, because there will be yet another opportunity to reference Raiders Raiders of the Lost Ark as we as we get to uh, the real Tesseract. Yeah, um, right. Just speaking of other connections, the fact that Schmidt like this feels very much like the Last Crusade when you have the conversation in the uh, the the Knights Chamber about the um, the. Um, uh, why am I blanking on it? The what? Are, what are they trying to get in that one? The, the cup, the uh, holy the grail, cup, the the holy grail. Yeah, um, cup of a carpenter. And what's great about that is that is the way that they're kind of exploring the kind of their thoughts about it, and and that's exactly what Schmidt does here when he's like, it's not something one buries, and uh, you know he knows that it's not going to be in in this sarcophagus, but that it is here. And I love the way that that plays out um, because he just seems so, he, he it, it paints him, we already know he's incredibly strong, but there's a sense of smarts that we're also kind of writing into this character that he's able to kind of figure these puzzle pieces out. Uh, I enjoy that quite a bit with his character. And and he seems worldly. He understands Yggdrasil and, and all of this history with um, Norse mythology, which, um, I don't know, I, I find it to be very interesting and kind of exciting side of this particular character. There's a there's the the nature of the character that he has this sort of um, advanced intelligence, strength, cleverness, ingenuity, like all of these things that 
go into the calculus of like weighing against what he actually does, right? That is he really, you know, as a, a mad scientist, uh, can you just, is there an ends justify the means sort of uh, argument to be made in his actions, like the things that he does, blowing down the buildings to get this thing because all in the name of furthering science, all in the name of furthering the, you know, our march. But ultimately, we find out it's not really the march. It's his march and his, you know, his move as an authoritarian leader in history. But I think at this scene, we do get that sense that he's doing things because what he believes is right, is right on the other side of a slow push into the bas-relief on the wall. The way that that this is all built is is great. I mean, you know, there's the threat to the family. I mean, it all feels very like we've seen this scripted out many times before, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna kill everyone in your village, and um, you know, maybe your grandchildren, perhaps. And you have that moment. It's I will say I this it's as it's scripted. We have um, uh, the tower keeper flash his eyes to something behind. Schmidt, the way that uh, that uh, Filch does it here in the in the film, it's such a subtle signal that he does. Like it's it's like there's no eye flicker. He kind of bobs his head. Clearly, that's enough for Schmidt to figure it out. But as I watched the film the first time, it seemed strange to me that that he turned it. I was like, eh, maybe you were a little too subtle with that movement for uh, for people. Like not as subtle as his look toward. The the and I say this with all due respect, comically large tank uh, as it turns its <laughs> turret on the other side of the wall. <laughs> it is it, it, he does. He gives a full head nod to that. But man, his look at the wall is subtle. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as you mentioned, we do get this bob relief of Yggdrasil up on the wall. Um, we've never really seen it depicted like this. This is very much uh, kind of an artist depiction to have on the wall like this. Before we've we've only seen it as Thor's fantastic art that he drew uh, for Jane while sitting on the the roof of Smith Motors, and then of course we get the end credit space version that we are flying through. Uh, but this is the first time it really feels kind of like this Nordic history. Uh, what do you two think of the way that we're kind of looking at this art of Yggdrasil here? I think it's beautiful. I think it's an absolutely wonderful piece of artwork, and uh, uh, it's too bad that. Uh... I, well, yeah, I can't remember. Does it get destroyed? I hope not. Uh, there are a few animals that are supposed to live in the roots of Yggdrasil, and none of them are there except for the snake. And there's actually supposed to be, I think, a bunch of snakes, but uh, there's only one snake there uh, for the sake, I guess, of just being able to pull our focus point. Yeah, right, exactly. I think that was kind of the idea. Yeah, there technically should be an eagle on top of the tree with the world serpent. Well, there's the world serpent around the roots of the tree. But yeah, I, I, was, I was doing some research, too. And I found in the poem Grimnismal, uh, Odin says that more serpents lie beneath Yggdrasil than any fool can imagine. And um, <laughs> some of them, some of the snakes, go in Moin. It's like reading the dwarf names in Lord of the Rings. I was just going to say, Go, it's Glowin and Owen. <laughs> Goin, Moin, Moin, Grav, Graf, Vin, Vitnir, Grabakar, Grafvolur, <laughs> uh, Ofnir, Svarfnir. Sounds like then, you're talking backwards. 
I know that's exactly what it feels like. And then Nidhog, those are the uh, those are some of the snakes that potentially are are winding around in the roots uh, down here. But yes, we do zoom in on this one, and the way that I, I don't know, I just love the construction of the of the film here. I thought Joe Johnston found a great way to kind of push in on the tree and then move in on the roots right up to that snake. Um, any thoughts on the reveal that we have of that little snakehead down there? I just want to know, did you guys buy it? I think it was a little convenient. And it's like, oh, I instantly know that I need to push. Well, actually, we haven't got to that point yet in the, that's next minute. But <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, it is the only animal there. It's the only yeah, it's the, it's the only thing that yeah. stands out as something else like that's a little different from the, the rest of it. You know, it's it's like this thing with all these roots. And then you have, oh, is that a snake in the roots? Because, I mean, if you don't see the head, it just looks like roots. And so. It is something that's designed to stand. Maybe in that end, it stands out too much. <laughs> yeah, maybe it does. But I, I think the challenge is, especially on first viewing, it it's hard to pick out. Uh, I you know, this is obviously a minute viewing of this thing. It's hard to pick out that that's the only animal in the roots until I'm like watching it like really close up. Uh, and so yeah. to Curtis's point, it's convenient on the first watch that he would know to to push in on that snakehead um, is uh, is a bit convenient. And I, you know, narratively from the production design, we've got to move the story forward and this is how we're going to do it. I get all those constraints, yep. but it, it is tricky. And it it's the thing in this minute in the first, you know, 10 minutes that pulls me out. Like, how is, I know he's clever, but how did he connect that this was it? Because it's not in the script. Like, there's nothing that he says that actually tells me or convinces me, this is why I know this to be true. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we've seen elements like this. I mean, even in Indiana Jones films where they know yes. there's something there and they are just moving their hands all across a wall trying to figure out where's the secret button? Where's the secret button? <laughs> and that he could we could very easily have had that here. So I guess I don't know, is it are we meant to think that there's just such a draw between him and the Tesseract that he's just he goes to it instantly? It is it does strike me as kind of funny that that's that is how uh, how it plays out. Well, that's what I want to know. Uh, I'm going to reach for a no prize here. Uh, it could be that Schmidt knows all along exactly where it is in the tree. And he's just toying with Filch the entire time, even with mm. the reveal in, in the in the sarcophagus. Well, I like that a lot. And I certainly say you get the no prize for coming yeah. up with that, because that, that would make <laughs> perfect sense that he'd already figured all of this out. I mean, he clearly knew yeah. the whole thing with the sarcophagus was a ruse. So this yeah. idea that, that oh, yeah, I know exactly where it is. I mean, we already, well, <laughs> we'll get to that in, in a, a later minute. But this whole threat against the villagers, you know, we'll see how that's going to play out. But it's interesting the way that uh, that all of this does feel very staged by him. Yeah, that's right. It's a showpiece. That's a really, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything else. The only other note I had was that uh, in the script, Schmidt actually picks up the tower keeper to threaten him, which I thought um, was just another opportunity to show his strength. We didn't necessarily need it. We have him throwing the lid off, which is fine. Oh, well, I'm glad they didn't do that because I actually like the fact that he is menacing not having to touch anybody. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he didn't have to resort to physical violence to 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 be an absolute threat. No, absolutely. And equally, um, you know, obviously at this point in the movie, we don't know that he is ultimately Red Skull, but we do know that there are some little touches to his, uh, you know, his face. Did you um, notice the but, um, over the camera, over the shoulder shot when Filch gives the little eye thing to Yggdrasil? Uh, you can see slits, the little slits in his uh uh, behind his cheekbone there under it's his ear. fantastic it's fantastic detail work that they came up with yeah and and to that point like he doesn't he he doesn't have to be a physical brute he also doesn't have to be a grotesque right we don't have to have people cowering in fear because of his appearance at this point mm-hmm. in the film and he is still menacing and threatening yeah yeah works works so well all right well uh let's uh call it good for minute seven, uh, Curtis, remind everyone again about your podcast and where they can find it. Yeah, sure. You just have to head over to epicmarvelpodcast.com or search for Epic Marvel Podcast on any social media site. I'm there and most of the big ones, at least, but not on MySpace anymore. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some people are, so <laughs> it's crazy. MySpace. God, that was a thing when Iron Man you and Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Yeah, right. (laughs) Tony Stark talks about MySpace. (laughs) How things change, how things change. Uh, Well, everybody, you can uh, find us not on MySpace, but you can join our Facebook group, the Marvel Movie Minute Podcast Executive Lounge. We'd love to have you uh, join us over there. Uh, Otherwise, that's it. Uh, So we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, everybody. And until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Yeah, I'm going to let you have that one.